All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time podcast. The reason we decided at all to try and re-gear ourselves at teacher training courses was because we were finding it increasingly stressful, our candidates were finding it stressful. The real problem that a lot of candidates seemed to be having was we were asking them to learn about how to teach through engaging with the prefabricated outcomes of somebody else's expertise in the form of a course book. And then 2010, Izzy Ward and I went to IATEFL and gave our first talk about what we were doing in Hamburg because we'd read Scott and Luke's book and we'd kind of thought, can we apply these principles to initial teacher education? We talked about Is that, that when and- you were criticized for being dangerous and irresponsible? That was the year after in 2011, where... <laughs> We're going to um, come back to that, yeah. because I want to so hear no, that story too. Well, oh, no, this is where I'm going, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just about to feed it to you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money, without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone. Our program isn't for everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community. We have live sessions. We have self-paced learning. And more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. Welcome to another edition of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Leo, and today we have the pleasure of having Anthony Goggin here in the show. Anthony is a teacher, a teacher trainer with over 25 years of experience working in many different settings, corporate, 
state secondary, higher education, and private adult education sectors. He is a Cambridge English approved assessor and the main course tutor for the CELTA initial tra teacher training qualifications, as well as a tutor for the Delta Module 2 and the Trinity Diploma. Together with his then colleague Izzy Ord, Anthony first was the first one to actually apply Dogma ELT principles to running CELTA courses way back in 2009. And ever since then, he's been advocating for simplifying initial teacher education. He gives talks and workshops on this and other topics for schools, for teachers associations, teachers associations, and publishers worldwide and online. He is also a former coordinator of the TD-SIG, which is the Teacher Development Special Interest Group within ITEFL, for which he has also volunteered on the Membership and Marketing Committee. He has become accustomed to writing about himself in the third person, and although he does not write publicly about ELT much these days, when he does, it's over at his blog, teachertrainingunplugged.com. Now, let's get on with the show. Right. Anthony, welcome to the show, and we wanted to first of all thank you for taking the time to, you know, come here and, and do this interview with us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I thought we would start actually from the beginning. Um, I don't really know much about your humble beginnings as a as a teacher, so perhaps we could talk more about how you actually um, got into language teaching. Right. Okay. Well, we'd probably have to go back to. Um, when would that be? Somewhere in the mid 80s. And it was in oh, my wow. first year of high school um, or secondary school. So I was about 11 years old. And in, the, in England uh, or in the UK, generally, a school year is divided into three terms, you know, sort of three blocks. And the first term, I had a, an English teacher called Mr. Lyons. Michael Lyons, who I thought was brilliant, and I had a wonderful term. We did lots of creative writing, learned about nouns and verbs and stuff. But really, he was just very, very um, inspiring um, and in ways that I didn't quite understand at the time. But then the next term, I had another teacher who perhaps should remain nameless, but um, <laughs> she, she was uh, not these things and we kind of we butted heads as much as an 11 year old can with a an, you know a mature adult in a position of authority but I spent the term thinking you know I could do better than this um, and so I kind of decided in my 11 year old arrogance that I would and that when mm. I grew up I'd become an English teacher so that kind of stuck with me um, and after a few sort of vacillations about what exactly I was going to go to university to do I did in the end decide that I would not study philosophy and politics as I sort of decided mm. I was almost going to but go back and do English language and literature uh, with a view to train to be a state English teacher in the UK and so when I finished my degree I thought it would probably be wise to find out whether I was cut out for this at all so I thought the short um, or the low risk entry point would be something like teaching English as a foreign language. I knew there were short courses and I knew I could probably get a job doing that in London where I lived. And so I took a short course over the summer break at the end of my finals and then went job hunting in central London, you know, sort of the meat markets <laughs> of Tottenham Court Road, Charing Cross Road. 
And this was around about 1995, uh, 1995, 1996. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And then I went back to university to state teacher training at the Institute of Education and realized during that process that I wasn't really, it's not that I wasn't cut out for state teacher, uh, state teaching, but the environment had changed, you know, with, mm. you know, uh, governmental um, directives and the um, and everything that came off the back of things at that time in the UK. It's maybe a specialized conversation, and so that kind of dovetailed with, um, for personal reasons, me wanting to move to Germany. Um, then led me back to English language teaching in two thousand because I couldn't directly transfer to the state sector in Germany and I just stuck around and then just found my niche there so mm. that's kind of how how it went sort of 15 well five years moving from university to to language teaching in the UK in the private sector and then in the state sector for a brief period then hopping over to to the continent hmm. and uh, and settling down in um, in Berlin Right. You said that you found your niche there. Is that niche the same as what you do now? Yeah. So when I moved to Germany, I spent the first month actually stripping floors in my new apartment and doing all of that kind of domestic stuff. And then we, we went for a month to Iceland, which broke the bank. And so that just ensured that when I came back, I desperately needed money. And then someone who I should give a shout out to, Sue Herbert, um, who was the senior teacher at the British Council in Berlin at the time. Um, and it was a much larger um, organization then than it was now, uh, or is now because of changes in funding and, and how they're um, managing language training within uh, the council at the moment. But she just happened to need a supply teacher and just looked at the past stack of applications that had come in and just noticed that we'd both gone to the same university and thought I may as well call this person up. So the old school tie and Sue Herbert's impeccable good, good judgment uh, of character, I think, got me my first job in, in Berlin. And that's also incidentally where I first saw Scott Thornbury and how the whole dogma thing kind of kicked off for me. So it really was quite an important, um, quite an important opportunity she gave me. So thank you very much, Sue. I still appreciate it 22 years later. And what is what was your your niche back then? And you mm. say it's the same one until now, right? So I, that's true. I didn't answer your question, did I? Um, so <laughs> I um, it's okay. I started. Yeah, I, uh, okay. I started um, in Germany doing what everyone basically does there, which is teaching business English to adults, either in company mm. or or at the schools I worked for as a freelance teacher, because Germany has always basically been a freelance market, very different from, say, Spain or Italy or right. France, um, although they've moved that way now. But um, I started working for a school called the Berlin School of English, just around the corner from the Reichstag. And um, after about a year or so, um, the British Council was looking for um, looking to take on full-time teachers on contract for various legal reasons in Germany. And I applied, I didn't get the job, but that was enough to let Martin Payant, the owner of the Berlin and Hamburg schools of English, know that I was interested in finding something more concrete to do. And he was, um, I'll be arrogant enough to say, smart enough to realize uh, a good thing when he saw it. And he offered me a contract and I became um, assistant director of studies 
and um, focused mainly on providing in-house teacher training to the staff mm. and observations. And around about that same time, this would be about 2003 or so, I guess, um, he also decided he wanted to move into teacher training in, a, mm. in an organizational way, opened first of all with um, Anne Holloway, his, um, his teacher, um, head of teacher training in Hamburg. They opened the first CELTA center in Hamburg and about a year and a half later with Dominic Braham, who was already a very well-established and well-respected CELTA trainer in Germany and had worked all over the place, um, including in the States and um, in Finland and all over. He um, moved his CELTA teacher training center to our school in Berlin and I trained on the first courses we ran there as a CELTA tutor and that's what I've been doing pretty much ever since. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's your niche then, huh? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Sort of, yeah. Very long answer. I could have just said I'm a Celta tutor, but no, no. This <laughs> I'm is still a bit nervous good. and don't know quite how much to say. This is good, especially because you've mentioned that Germany is a completely different market, and I noticed that this freelance market is actually has been expanding. A lot of the teachers that we have been interacting with are teachers who used to work for institutions and are now kind of like pursuing this freelance more like I am my own business type of um, arrangement what, what do you like based on your experience working as a freelancer and working for um, an institution what do you see as some of the pros and cons of being a, a freelance teacher with a very specific niche I think the answers to that question are largely influenced by what stage of your career you're at Mm. Um, so I think that when you're a beginning teacher, um, I think you would be far better served as a contract employee, even if it was like for a two year fixed term or something, you've got like the assurance of what you're doing, you've got an income, you've got a stable set of colleagues who don't, who are probably usually there physically in some sense, they're not just people who, who, you know, send in their availability to the school, get told what to do and never really enter the mothership of the staff room you know <laughs> right um and so you, you get to you get to learn stuff I like that and um but then after a while if you focus on your own development to any extent you probably start to notice that um it helps to kind of get outside of the fishbowl to mix metaphors you know from mothership to fishbowl you have to get out and work with other people and realize that the way you do things in your institution are not the only way of doing things and not even necessarily the best way. Um, so for that, freelancing um, is really useful. And um, then at some point, you know, you perhaps have the expertise um, and the confidence, you know, the, the, sort of the, the technical and, and marketing wherewithal to just do better for yourself either in terms of like financial terms or in terms right. of time management or in terms of focus of interest um but i think at the beginning um i, I would have been much happier london was similar it was you weren't really on proper contracts it was like a zero hours type thing that wow. everyone's complaining about now i wasn't best served by that looking back even though i made the best of it um, I think it would have been much better for me to go abroad and work for someone like a IH or the British Council or any other reasonably responsible school that would say, look, you give us your time for two years, 
and we'll give you this support experience and a range of teaching um, opportunities. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. Okay. I kind of want to go back a little bit because I want to go back to when you got your first um, TEFL certificate. Was it a TEFL certificate? Was it a CELTA? I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is another skeleton in my, in my closet, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so a few of the, like the, the early moves in my career are, are, are a bit shady or dodgy when I look back on them. So Lots of people listening to this will have, you know, done an official Cambridge CELTA or Trinity Cert TESOL or right. SAT um, TESOL certificate or something like that, or maybe have done two or three years of state teacher education in their country. Um, I was at university. The university, of course, had a modern languages department, you know, French, German, Italian. All of these students needed to go on gap years to other countries, mm -hmm. and they needed some... Um, some kind of uh, useful thing that they could do there. And so the university in collaboration with a teacher training organization in the area put together their own, um, if I was being polite, I would call it bespoke in-house uh, <laughs> initial teacher training certificate. What it really was, was a complete ripoff of the Trinity Cert TESOL because that's what... <laughs> That's what this teacher training organization was, right. was generally offering. They just basically said, all right, we'll cut the costs by not asking Trinity to moderate this. The University of London will moderate it themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but essentially, it was it was a 130-hour, um, six hours of live teaching, foreign language right. lessons, um, you know, the whole thing based on the Trinity Cert TESOL. Um, but my certificate is a University of London, you know, Right. certificate um so yeah that was that was how i got into it interesting <laughs> huh and and based on that like when you got that certificate and you started teaching and you've mentioned something about focusing on your development mm. like what did you like perhaps in the very early stages in the genesis of your teaching what were some of the most important perhaps things you've learned when you were actually learning to teach, because right. I, I don't know, and this is something that we're going to get into um, later on. Like, I don't know if everything that we learn in those courses are actually necessary for you mm. to carry on in your teaching career. So perhaps looking back, what were some of the most important things you've actually absorbed from, from that initial training that mm. are still perhaps with you today? It's a difficult question. I know, but yeah. Uh. Well, um, one thing I, I, I remember very, very little from that training experience, which I find uh. astounding considering it was like a month long, right? Right. Um, maybe I was just like too, still too hungover from the <laughs> celebrating the, the finals. But, um, but I do remember quite a lot of bits and pieces of it. One mm. thing I remember... Um, and this stuck with me, was the importance of getting on with your team. So there were mm -hmm. lots of other people from other departments who were doing this course. We all had our own individualistic reason for doing it. But there were a couple of people who were just really good at keeping us together as a group. One of them was this, this old gentleman who was a mature student. He was retired when he started his degree. And he, he was taking Italian because he wanted to basically retire to Italy and spend the you know his 
his last few years just reading Dante in the original. Wow. Um, and that was what oh, he wanted yeah. to do. And so that was what he was going off to do. But he just had this, this, um, this kind of lovely energy about him and enthusiasm mm. that really helped us as a group of trainees stick together. And that, I think, taught me that as a team of teachers later on, you equally needed that, especially, I think, in a situation like Germany, where you're essentially like a solo operator. Mm -hmm. um, you burn out, I think, pretty quickly if, if you don't have other people to connect with. In terms of technique, um, it was quite, a, quite traditional, I suppose, for the time, quite an emphasis on on oral, oral uh, accuracy, focus right. on phonology, and that stuck with me. You know, uh, I'm I do place quite a lot of emphasis on on working with sound, um, and in ways that can probably seem quite old fashioned or old school um, these days, or for a while it will have. Maybe it's come back into fashion a bit more now. And um, also as a trainee. Um, I had probably the worst first teaching practice I can possibly imagine. And that's oh, always yeah? made, given me a lot of sympathy for um, my trainees in the future, although they might dispute whether I'm, <laughs> whether I show that sympathy very much, but, um, but I certainly do. Yeah, no, it was awful. Um, are you familiar with the kind of um, fluency activity, a balloon debate? A balloon debate? Yeah. So you have to imagine that you and your oh. classmates are in a hot air balloon sailing across the countryside and okay. the hot air balloon develops a leak right and okay sure this could this could end for all of you very badly unless you relieve the ballast of the balloon um to allow you to remain buoyant long enough to say uh, safely land which okay. requires somebody to leave the balloon um, uh... and so the conversation is basically which of us is disposable or expendable which oh. is in retrospect an absolutely horrendous idea for a community of speaking task but somebody back in the <laughs> 80s or the 90s thought that it was a good idea um my trainer gave it to me anyway to do i had a group of and this wow. this will sound like an absolute cliche um apocryphal story but i swear to you every word of this is true um i was teaching a group of pre-sessional japanese students um who were there at the language center and i set up the activity you know i said we're all in balloon etc cetera, etc cetera. and there were about seven of them there um you know men and women and they listened very carefully um mm. and i said okay so you understand they were like yes we understand mm -hmm. so okay so start and nobody spoke nobody spoke for about 30 <laughs> seconds i'm standing there and i'm thinking what's this and they were all just sort of looking down a little bit you know thinking and then it just happened there was there was a man sitting in the middle he's just sort of looked to the left and the right and they kind of nodded to each other and then he says we've decided uh, and i and i said what have you decided you you haven't spoken <laughs> he said no we've decided we all <laughs> i said what we all jump and they basically eventually uh, they, they were intermediate but they they articulated that none of them thought it was fair for an individual to to sacrifice themselves for the for everyone so they they just decided that was it that was the end of the, wow. the balloon ride this was around about now bear in mind maybe about six minutes into my 45 50 minute lesson and at that point i have a blackout 
in my memory. I, I literally do not remember anything after that, except um, at the end of the lesson, I'm sitting at the back of the room. And it's like, you know, when you come out of a, out of a kind of an unconsciousness and you slowly start to realize what's around you and the tutor is talking about reducing talking time or some nonsense. And I just know that for the last like <laughs> 38 minutes, I've lost consciousness and I don't know what happened. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, like I say, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I'm not. <laughs> wow, that is an interesting story. Well, that I was gonna, I mean, I was gonna ask this next question, but that I think we may, may have an illustration of an answer. But I was, I was gonna ask you. Okay, so we've talked about what you've taken with you from that original training throughout the rest of your career, um, and maybe this is an illustration. But what? Did that experience or that initial training, what from that did you or were you inspired by in order to move towards a more dogmatic approach? And what mm. about that initial training kind of had you maybe thinking or maybe it wasn't right at that moment, maybe it was a couple of years later or something. But what did you then conversely take from that that made you think maybe this doesn't work in all circumstances? Maybe this isn't universally applicable. What made you kind of start to walk down the, the dogma path? Yeah, that probably came in my first job um, or later, because the thing with the course that I did, the training course that I did, I didn't appreciate this at the time, but it was very, very old school in its approach to materials creation. You know, we weren't given course books. We didn't have like a, a, a set course book for the first two weeks with the trainees, uh, with the students, and we didn't work through it in any particular way. We didn't get teaching practice points. Um, we were basically told, you know, okay, so on that day, you know, this is what we'd like you to achieve as a, as a trio. Here are some ideas. And there was a lot more of a workshopping to it. Mm. And we created our own stories like live listenings, or we wrote our own texts. So we made our own oh, nice. flashcards and all of that stuff. So it was very, very, what I think, you know, the original RSA cert, um, Tefla, which became the Cambridge Celter at some point would have been like, especially in up to the early eighties before the advent of course books like headway for example which i think changed the game you know once mm -hmm. you had something like headway intermediate being published um i think around about like the mid 80s something yeah. like that yeah 85 80, 85 85 exactly yeah, yeah. yeah um that really started a ball rolling that that snowballed just about in time for 95 97 with um where technology like first CD-ROMs, then DVD-ROMs, then the internet slowly started to enable and therefore force, I think, through market pressure and expectation, publishers to start increasing the volume of provided content, um, which then had a, a trickle-down pressure on teachers to make use of all of this stuff because students were being told to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my early training, I think I was essentially... Um, trained in a materials light focus on emergent language kind of environment without knowing it mm. um and then over the first couple of years of my experience you know when i got my first job um i basically had to learn how to effectively and efficiently mobilize a course book you know mm. um which i didn't really know how to do but i had very little time to learn um so I became very good at that, but 
as that year and a half went on, even in that short period, I could see a massive increase every time a new course book came out with the volume of ancillary stuff that came right. with it. Right. Um, and that was around about the same time that I guess Scott Thornbury and Neil Forrest in Barcelona were noticing the same thing, observing their Delta or diploma candidates. And something eventually had to give. Um, but at that point, um, I just realized that this wasn't really teaching as far as I was concerned. Um, mm. And so I, I tried to manage it as best I could. And then when I got to Germany after my brief period in the state sector, which again was quite heavily materials governed and from the top down with the national curriculum and, and everything attached to that, um, I was quite relieved that the school that I was working for, you know, the Berlin School of English, basically just said, this is what we'd like you to kind of achieve within the time we give you with these students. Mm -hmm. How you and what do was it that? Was it like basically learning? Was it teaching points or more like a, a set curriculum or just outcomes? Well, it would depend on the, the type of class. So there were intensive right. courses that would run, you know, three 90 minutes a day over two weeks. Um, there you'd have a, a, a clear teaching plan for the two weeks right. you knew what you were doing if it's you know Wednesday morning it's the present perfect but how exactly you focus on that and what you do with right. it and and so on that was entirely up to you if you had evening classes it was based on the needs analysis of the students in the room right. if you had one-to-ones same kind of thing and that was that partly arises because of Germany being a freelance market the schools legally in a way can't dictate how you do certain things to the same degree they could if you were contracted. It's just not allowed technically. Right. But it did give us as teachers this, this great latitude and freedom um, mm. to go about things in ways that we saw fit with as much or as little as we saw fit. And, um, and that I appreciated um, getting back to that. And so when mm. I went into teacher training and I started to feel the kind of the pressures on candidates of time, you know, on courses like CELTA, um, I started to ask myself, is there a way of relieving that and mm -hmm. getting better outcomes, not producing people who basically can, who are like, not just course book technicians, but who actually had a chance to learn the lessons that I had, you know, I actually love the way you say that course book technicians or course book operators. Actually, the yeah. textbook assembly yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. I want to yeah. go back to one thing you said here, um, Anthony. You said this isn't teaching. Could mm. you could you expand on that? Yeah. Well, I can try. Um, I think, in a sense, there's there's nothing wrong with having, let's say, a, a course book, which is right. just a, a predetermined set of ideal outcomes for a mm -hmm. course of study and materials that are kind of designed to help you do that. There's nothing wrong with just implementing that with your students and doing it kind of well. Um, and knowing like if they say this and the answer should be this, then you say, no, that's wrong, it's this. And you know, there's a certain minimum set of behaviors that, um, that would help people learn, but I don't think it, you can equate that with teaching mm. because for me, teaching, <sighs> requires that you take the starting point of what is being taught as wherever the person that you're teaching is at mm. right and you go to that place and then you take them from there you know to wherever they want to get to and it's it's difficult if not impossible to imagine doing that with 
you know, cutting edge intermediate third edition for every student that you're working with in that month, you know? Um, so I think there's a definite limitation there. And right. more broadly, um, I think that it's quite easy to appear to be teaching when you have a, a sufficiently well-designed piece of courseware to rely on. Um, so in my training, I, I kind of make a distinction between teaching and teaching-like behavior. Mm. Um, and I used to have a, a wonderful list of things that for me differentiate these that then went the way of all flesh on the internet at some point i lost it but oh. essentially you know an example of teaching like behavior might you know might be classic display questions right. all the time you know asking questions that you already know the answer to or assuming that because your students don't know how english works they don't know how the world works or right. um you know just doing these ritualistic things you know in, in mm -hmm. scott's terms whereas for me teaching would be you know genuinely listening to what somebody is trying to to mean you know mm -hmm. as opposed to say but what they're trying to mean um thinking about how they might say that better on their terms so mm -hmm. you're you're not trying to give them a way of saying something that would turn them into a kind of a, a linguistic mini me you know but you think okay right. this is how you want to talk this is how you like to express yourself interesting what can i give you that will help you say what you mean in a way that makes it sound like you give exactly. it to you and find some way of helping you take that on board um and for me as a for, for language teaching for me that's that's teaching mm. um and it's like i say not easy to get out if you've got a course book and 30 people in front of you into your CELTA training because I think everyone has an idea of what a CELTA looks like and mm. it's planning heavy, book heavy, textbook, plan two hours to teach one hour type of yeah. scenario, you know, in, in, a, in a general context. So really curious to hear how you kind of move away from that in, in your own CELTA training. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, um, I don't know really to what degree you can move away from some of those things that you mentioned mm. um, so for example if you want to learn to do anything that you don't know how to do it's going to be labor intensive right you're going to put in a disproportionate amount of time thinking about preparing for rehearsing visualizing mm -hmm. you know all of that stuff um, in comparison with the outcome I mean, that's the nature of learning anything. Um, having said that, um, I suppose that to take a step back, my colleague at the time, um, around about 2009, Izzy Ord, um, mm -hmm. I was working with her in, in Hamburg. The reason we decided at all to try and re-gear our CELTA teacher training courses was because we were finding it increasingly stressful. Our candidates were mm. finding it stressful. Yet all the feedback we were receiving was telling us we were doing a wonderful job. You right. know, the assessors were always happy. The trainees always said, oh, this is so good. It's really stressful, blah, blah, blah. And we thought, okay, um, why? And one thing we decided was that, first of all, CELTA is a beast when it comes to documentation and paperwork right. and everything. Um, but 
underneath all of that, the real problem that a lot of candidates seem to be having was we were asking them to learn about how to teach through engaging with the prefabricated um, outcomes of somebody else's expertise in the form of a course book, right? right? And so the idea of giving a trainee a course book at the beginning of the course and over the course of four weeks, weaning them off it so that they can become more independent, they can create their own materials and so on by the end of the course appeared suddenly for me to be completely backwards. Because hmm. if you give someone who's a novice, um, basically um, a Bible combined with an instruction manual, right, then they have to work out how to do their job in its terms. Right. And some people just aren't very good at thinking about how to do something in someone else's terms before they've understood it on their terms. Mm. And so we thought, okay, well, how about we just get rid of that thing um, and then say, right, what do we have that we need to work with? We have you, the trainee, we have these people, the students, and we have what they'd like to get better at, the language, right? Mm. Okay, now let's imagine trainee you want to get these people um, more confident and capable at speaking about something, right? Okay. How do you think you could do that? And most people are pretty capable of saying, well, I need to give them something interesting to talk about and get out of their way while they do it and maybe help them when they need help. It's like, yeah, good. Right. That makes sense. How can we, how can we go about doing that then? And then build up a workflow think of how they um, how they might need to respond at various points you know think about contingencies this is the planning or the preparation mm. and then just set them off and do it and then at some point ultimately we decided around about the halfway stage of the course once we've laid some foundations and people have started to gain some first-hand experience of what it means to think about um, how to prepare a lesson in inverted commas um, then we say, okay, now here are some course books that we're going to be making use of for the next two weeks. Let's map what you understand now teaching to be onto what you see here on the page. Do you see wow. a fit? Do you see an overlap? And then they're like, oh yeah, I see how they're doing this, 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 but this doesn't make much sense, does it? And you know, I'm like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't. So what if I did this instead? And it's like, yeah, you could do that. Um, and so the stronger candidates um, can generally continue doing their own thing substantially or working with the courseware that we provide them at later stages of the course with more i don't know um more confidence if you mm -hmm. will uh, or as um penny er once put it they're more happy to to mutilate the course book and the, the less confident trainees at least feel like when they look at this thing it's not some kind of um holy writ you know, but the, mm. and and it's not something in another language. You know, lit literally, it, it's something that they can understand um, um, on terms or in terms that they have worked out for themselves. However, kind of painfully over the previous weeks, and so our courses on the surface maybe don't look that different. You know, we've got input sessions, we've got planning, and all of that mm -hmm. stuff because you have to. Right. 
but where they do differ is um, where we want to, our, our trainees to start the process of, of learning and being teachers and where we want them to end up. And so if anything, I'm weaning them onto courseware so that they don't, they don't become dependent on it at a formative early stage of their development. Um, mm. And that's probably the biggest difference. Um, and another difference is that we don't give them, we don't dictate um, in very precise terms what anyone is teaching after their first lesson, their very first teaching practice, we give them a simple speaking task. Everyone does a speaking task from um, Luke and Scott's Teaching Unplugged, actually, most of them. We stole them from there. Um, huh, thanks, nice. Scott. Thanks, Luke. Um, <laughs> thanks, community. And um, and then for TP2, they all create either a live listening or they write a short text about something to do with their own lives and create their own tasks for, for that. And, and then their language lessons which we push back into weeks you know week two and after we have them choose what they're going to focus on based on their observation of the students over the first three days and so they're they're constantly writing down what the students are saying and then we have a session where we pull this we look at it all together we categorize it into okay this is grammar this is vocabulary potential this is um, phonological and then we just decide who's going to do what over the next week. And we just That's divide amazing. it up. And then they blend what they've learned about text design and text work with listening and reading. And then they just say, okay, well, how can I just add a language focus into that? You know, and then they design that. And then that gets us through to the end of TP3 and TP4 in CELTA terms, halfway stage for us. And then we change level and we say, okay, right, well, let's basically continue doing this, but now here's this published stuff that we can make use of if we feel like, and then go from there. All right, and welcome to another interview with a Teacher Accelerator member and Jessica Diaz. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. When you have only one one-on-one lessons, one-to-one, there's a limit you're going to have a limit of students. And even if you have like 20 students, that's too much. They're going to be overworked and overwhelmed. That's not something that I wanted. I'm not leaving school to be overworked with something that's going to leave me trapped again. That's, that's the thing of having your online course, because you can be at the beach selling your course. This being overworked took, took a toll on my mental health. So I was like, I want to have time to go to the gym, to spend time with my family, with my friends. And I wasn't able to do that. I wanted to help more students. And I also wanted to have more time for myself and also to develop myself as a professional because I wanted to read more. I wanted to take other courses. There's so much things uh, in the tap course. Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. We work hard to produce a show that's theoretical, practical, and hopefully interesting. But, you know, not everything fits into a podcast format. And we've been working hard behind the scenes on something that we're excited about. And we hope you are too. And we're happy to share it with you right now. But first, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you a teacher with your own business? Number two, are you looking to grow that business? And number three, are you interested in doing that quickly and overcoming common pitfalls? If so, we have a new free 120-hour training that might be for you. You know, we've worked with hundreds of teachers over the years and have seen them stumble on common obstacles when it comes to business. 
These obstacles cause delays and stagnate growth to what would otherwise be a successful operation. And now we're happy to say that we've developed an email course to help you overcome these challenges so you can see growth in your business right away. This is a step-by-step -step email training to help you overcome the five obstacles that we've seen prevent most teachers from building their business successfully, whether you teach one-to-one -one or groups or don't have your own business yet. In this course, we look at things like business mindset, dogma ELT and materials light teaching, attracting the right kind of client, crafting your offer, and an essential business model every teacher should use. With this, we've helped hundreds of teachers to overcome these, and now you can do it as well. To begin, just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles. Once enrolled, you'll get an email from us every day for five days with strategies, tasks, and actionables to use in your business immediately. Plus, at the end, there's a little treat from the three of us. So once again, head over to learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles and get started with this free 120-hour course and see growth in your business in just five days. The link to that is also in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. Hey everyone out there, I am Pamela from Costa Rica and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hola a todos, ¿cómo están? Mi nombre es Pamela y soy de Costa Rica y ustedes están escuchando en este momento Teacher Talking Time del podcast Aprende Tu Inglés. Wow. So it is doable then. There's a, a lot of very interesting concepts there. Like I love how you basically get the trainees to use first principle thinking, like really looking at, okay, so this is what you want them. This is what these people want to do. Mm -hmm. How do we get there? So you're basically not ignoring, as you said earlier, you're not ignoring the fact that these trainees are not tabula rasas. They're not like mm -hmm. people without any knowledge of the world. So I, I really, I think this is amazing because I've always wanted to know, I've always wanted to ask you this question. So I'm glad you actually uh, told us more about that. And I'm, I'm curious to hear more. There are a lot of other things that we need to unpack here, but you've talked about listening, um, how you really, because you talk a lot of, I, when I did a little quick um, Google search on you, the word minimalism mm -hmm. seems to be very frequent in everything that you write or talk about. So I wanted to talk more about listening and, and this idea of minimalist um, or minimalistic teaching, if you prefer. So how does minimalism connect to dogme or to this approach to initial teacher training? And more importantly, how do you train? Because we find that this is one of the most difficult things for teachers is to how to really train someone to listen to students, like really, really listen. Because you've talked about listening. And I truly believe that active listening is a teaching skill. So how do you go about doing that, Anthony? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, so to give me time to think about an answer, let me backtrack historically. Um, so when Scott wrote his article, um, A Dogma for EFL, even the title actually tells you, you know, when it was yeah. historically, because no one talks about EFL anymore, do they? Yes, really. Um, he, he wrote that because he and his diploma colleague, Neil Forrest, um, I think I'm getting that right, yeah. were just getting frustrated at teachers who were doing these diploma level lessons where they'd come in and they would just basically um, implement material, you know. Mm. Um, so you had very competent 
uh, course book operators, um, but then they weren't listening to what the students were saying or able to respond when something unusual happened or, you know, just opportunities le leaking out of the lesson. Um, and so his solution was basically just banning them in some respects from bringing anything in. It's like, you're not allowed to have any more than right. one handout. You're not allowed to do this. You have to actually talk to people. I want 80% of the time, you know, students talking to you or whatever the measure was. And um, I think that essentially is influenced by the, the minimalist principle, which is it basically um, identify priorities and eliminate the rest. You know, so if what you want is X, then remove A to, you know, Y and, you know, everything after that. And so on our courses, part of my thinking on that was let's remove the courseware, right? Mm -hmm. Let's remove quite a lot of the input and reinvest the time into the teaching practice preparation and feedback so right. that material that we're using as grist to the mill to sharpen their thinking is their experience rather than just imported examples and, and knowledge and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think to answer the first part of the question, I think minimalism and dogme can um, meet with this notion that, um, you can achieve far larger outcomes with far less than you think is necessary if you know how to work it you know right i suppose in just the same way that you can um this is this is, you know a shaving metaphor but you can you can waste an awful lot of shaving cream if you don't know how to work it into a lather right <laughs> um and the same with any other kind of resource. So, um, so there's that. Minimal teaching is minimal resource teaching, right? It's not minimal outcome. It's not minimal gain. No. It's minimal yeah. excess, as you put yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, back in back in the day, there was a book. I think I can't remember who wrote it, and maybe Lindsay Clanfield had a hand in it called "The Minimax Teacher." Oh, so, I have a copy of yeah. that book. Yeah. Yeah. Minimize, right. minimize input, maximize output. It's exactly right. Yeah. Cover, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly right. And I think essentially that's it. You know, it's, yeah. And a lot of people, that's yeah. the one absolute yes. corker. Minimize teacher input and maximize student output. John Taylor, by the way. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't, I mean, having said that, I think that teachers should be talking to their students and they should be talking to them a lot more than they are in us in a different way you know mm. so i think they should actually be genuinely having conversations they should ask questions to their students that they don't know the answers to already right they should be willing to answer their students questions at greater length even if it seems like this is a diversion from achieving the aims of the lesson because the the kind of the the seedbed for all that goes on in the classroom has to be shared context and rapport mm. right and you only get that by talking to people um background knowledge about each other a sense of where you can go with things and from that you can start to have conversations um so that's that's maybe where i see minimalism coming in um and i'm not against materials and i'm not against course books um i just think that if you're going to use them then pick them wisely and mm -hmm. wring them dry 
you know this was the this was what I learned I guess in my first year and a half because I had nothing else and I had very little time to prepare so I had to learn how to get the most out of whatever it was that I had available in the book so I'm not against that kind of thing but I do think you have to you have to know what you're doing with it and with listening exploit it right? yeah exactly really and, and know what not to use and to know when you're better than it and when it's maybe better than you um which mm, takes a certain humility that i'm not yes. very <laughs> known for um, well speaking of humility well andrew you're gonna say something go ahead mm. and you ask the trainees you know how what do you expect to happen here and then as you do a lesson and then you dividing up you know who's tackling the phonology that came from that lesson who's dividing the vocabulary that came from that lesson mm -hmm. what you're doing or if i'm assuming correctly is you're already building up their ability to notice language and to do needs analysis and yeah. needs assessments yeah. as they're going through and active listening you're going to answer here just in a second i'm assuming but there's no point in active listening if we're not actually noticing what we're listening to as the teacher, right? right. So how do I, am I able to notice the gaps that my students are telling me they have? Mm. Am I able to notice their phonology gaps, their vocabulary gaps, their Lexus gaps, their le et cetera, et cetera. And so the active listening goes part and parcel with being able to do that needs analysis on, on, the, on the spot, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that learning to listen is probably the essential skill, is the master skill for a language teacher, especially. I mean, arguably maybe any teacher, but certainly for a language teacher. Um, and without it, I don't think you're getting anywhere. So what does it mean actually to listen as a teacher? I once tried to work this out in like a flow diagram, like what happens in my head while I'm listening to someone. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it turned out to be intimidatingly complex because, um, I, you know, I'd sketch it for you, but, uh, you know, I'll try and make it as clear as possible just describing it because people are going to be listening to this. Um, so sound enters my ears. It's like, first of all, I've got to actually hear it and I've got to hear it accurately, not only in terms of the what the message might be, but I've got to just capture it acoustically accurately. This is also true for learners if they want to actually acquire language so i've got to capture it accurately long enough for me to decode it so to say okay what is this person saying then have i understood what they're saying what they're trying to say yes no right if yes have they said it formally on some level accurately or not yes mm -hmm. no if yes is there anything in it that might be useful or generative or exploitable, like some useful language, some particular phrasing, the fluency mm -hmm. just being exceptionally good, um, something that you could use as a generalizable pattern um, if you just unpacked it. So is there anything that, that could be exploited in it, even if I've understood it perfectly, they've said what they meant, it's well-formed and it's confidently and fluently delivered, can I still leverage it for something? And if no, you know, what's wrong with it? You know. Did they say something perfectly well-formed, but not in a way that they should ever have tried to say? Like, um, I've been there yesterday, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, well-formed, just shouldn't ever have used the present perfect. Um, have they got something wrong with the form? Have they got something wrong with the phonology on whatever level? Or maybe are all of those things okay, but it just wasn't confidently delivered? You know, so, you know, how can I buttress that? 
Um, and so all of those decisions snapping through and then right. at some point, okay, how am I going to get them to see that? Right. So what am I going to put up on the board? What am I going to say? What am I going to do to get them from there to the improved version or to see the potential in the thing that they said that was done well and share that with the group? And then what am I going to do with that afterwards? Like, how is that going to feed into some extension activity or how am I going to recycle that later? Mm -hmm. um, and all of this has to go on in very short time periods. <laughs> yes. Um, which is why I also just place so much of an emphasis with my, with my trainee teachers, my beginning teachers on monitoring pair and group work um, and note-taking like, you know, verbatim, transcriptions of what people are saying so that they don't have to remember it because they've got it down in front of them and then they mm -hmm. can just take a pause while the activity is still running to go and think about it maybe consult with me or my fellow tutors at the back to say look i think this is interesting but i don't quite know what i can do with it or how would i do this and then they can go up the front in the feedback stage delayed feedback and give it a go um, or we can look at it after the lesson and say well it's interesting it was maybe a bit too complicated to try and deal with in the moment, but that's something you have to learn as well. You have to know yeah. how to pick your battles. And so that feeds into it. And you're absolutely right, Andrew, that this process um, trains people implicitly to yeah. become, you know, active listeners, but also kind of proactive in a way in making decisions mm -hmm. about what they're going to do with it. Um, and also teaches them how to, run a kind of an implicit needs analysis you know based mm -hmm. on outcomes um even though we don't actually talk about needs analysis or needs assessment on the course in terms of input um the process mm -hmm. does that in a way for us yeah this is really interesting anthony because i actually did a talk last week where i was talking about um i was reading the biography of leonardo da vinci and mm. i really like how he immersed himself in in details, in the details. And when, whenever he wanted to create a new style of painting, one that was more lifelike and more emotional, he engaged in this obsessive study of details. And I, and we were working with a lot of teachers who really want to pursue um, a more unplugged approach or mindset to teaching. And one of the things I, I told them is like, for me, when I look at dogma, I also think about what you're saying in terms of active listening and really, honing in on those details, zooming in on those details, because um, trying to approach language in general, you, you will do that. You have to do that, first of all, with a much more open mind, as opposed to like, I have a teaching point that I want to focus on, which kind of like gives you this tunnel vision. But if you let yourself study the details, that can kind of like guide your thinking and shape your own theories of teaching and learning. And I kind of like to think of everything as some sort of a hologram. The smallest part of it reflecting something essential about the whole, as opposed to just looking at, okay, I'm going to focus just as you said on the present perfect, and this is going to be the whole of it, but it's not. It's just as you said, basically thinking about one little thing that a student said or, or the, the user of the language has said, and kind of like, okay, let's go back to that because that's just as, as you said, a small part of, of, of the whole. So that seems to be the toolkit of dogme. It's learning to immerse yourself in the details, um, being a very good listener. But there is one thing that I, we often, a lot of the detractors of teaching unplugged say to us, 
I don't think that a, a, a beginner teacher, and I think you just kind of like prove them wrong that we can actually, a beginner teacher cannot focus on, cannot teach unplugged or cannot use this kind of um, approach to teaching because they don't have the language. They don't have the language awareness. And you've talked about real-time language awareness. What does that look like to you? And what kind of, what do you have to say on this in terms of a beginner teacher who doesn't have or has not developed their language awareness to the extent that they should eventually at some point if they are constantly developing? What do you have to say about that? I'm, I'm really curious about your take on this. Yeah, to go back in time again, um, back to say 2011. Um, so 2009, Luke and Scott published Teaching Unplugged the book after 10 years of that kind of germinating in the, the Yahoo group for Dogma EFL and so on, which has right. now gone the way of all flesh. And then 2010, Izzy Ward and I went to IATEFL and gave our first talk about what we were doing in Hamburg because we'd read Scott and Luke's book and we kind of thought, can we apply these principles to initial teacher education we talked about is that, that when and you were criticized for being dangerous and irresponsible that was the year after in 2011 where <laughs> we're going to um, come back to that yeah. because i want to so hear no, that story too oh, well no this is where i'm going yeah, yeah. oh okay. Yeah, okay i'm just about to feed it to you okay so we we came back in 2011 and we did this um symposium at IATEFL. um so it was um, Luke, Scott, me, Candy Van Olst, who I still think, and Scott would probably agree, has the best um, two-word definition of dogma ever. Oh. It's just listen, ask, mm. repeat. And when you unpack that as, as, a, as a concept and as a workflow, it's phenomenally powerful. Um, mm. And it just sounds so strange so stupidly simple but yeah candy hit the nail on the head there and a guy called howard vickers um and we each gave some little talks about what we were doing and how we thought it fed into dogma and then there was this q a and somebody in the audience um said uh that they thought that what i was doing with izzy in hamburg was irresponsible and dangerous because um beginning teachers couldn't possibly um kind of engage with learner language and so on with that level of sophistication. And the one thing I regret is not being fast enough to stop Scott from leaping to my defense. You know? <laughs> um, so the best I could do was when everyone else was piling out the room, I sort of shouted over them and said, hang on, hang on, hang on, that, that fella there, I didn't actually answer your question or, or, or respond to you. I'm very sorry about that, but you know what I look like. So, you know, if you want to talk about this later, find me outside. And everyone in the room kind of just went, oh, that came across wrong. <laughs> so sounded like, you know, step outside. I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. If you're listening, whoever you are, I wasn't, I wasn't threatening you. Okay. Um, but uh, I thought about that a lot afterwards. Um, and I wrote about it um, on my blog, but I think there's maybe um, a, it's possible to say that it's, it's irresponsible to expect inexperienced teachers to work with learner language um, at the same level of technical explicitness that some teachers are used to doing because and this is where i where i think it's a bad argument people often equate um, having strong language awareness with having strong explicit declarative knowledge oh, of yes language in other words yes. jargon right yes 
and I've seen. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, Can we just unpack sure. that because I think that's extremely an extremely important point for us to to um, to discuss here because that seems to be the number one thing we hear from from teachers like oh but you won't be able to explain complexity you won't be able to talk about how to talk about like a, 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 a an inversion or something you know so perhaps you could yeah 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 so there's this kind of logical error that people mm. make that in order to help somebody say something that they've just said any better you have to be able to kind of pass it in linguistic terms you have to label all the parts and you have to describe in technical language how the thing should be because of some abstract rules of of morphosyntax um, and essentially it's making the logical error of thinking that you need to be able to answer the question, why is it like that? And Richard Dawkins once said um, that there are some questions that are perfectly well-formed but are pointless to ask, such as, why are mountains? It's the wrong question to ask, right? Um, what you need to say is, like, what are, the, what are the conditions that lead to mountains and what are the outcomes on the environment that they have? And in just the same way, um, people mistake linguistic rules for um, what they really should be, which is a description of what is the case, right? Mm. So if you want to correct a student who says something like, um, you know, I've been there yesterday, all you need to say is, if you tell me when, say it like this, I went there yesterday. Yeah. yeah? That tells the student everything they need to know, right? And it avoids jargon completely, and anyone can do it. Um, okay. Jargon is just a tool, and it's mostly a tool that's useful for people who don't need it because they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And this is the problem. So when you're talking about um, language with students, um, it's frustrating to see perfectly intelligent, linguistically um, aware trainee teachers who feel like they can't help their students say things better because they themselves lack the um the formal education in jargon right like they know an error when they hear it they know why it's wrong they know what should be said and they can even express themselves clearly to say that right but they lack the confidence to do so because they think the student will ask them questions about meta language, or right. they think even worse that people observing them like me will judge them if they don't use it. Oh, that's so um, good. And it, it, it saddens me like to my core. <laughs> um, of course, the people who are starting their careers and who haven't studied languages in a formal way, etc can't talk about language in those terms but why should they anyway yeah why should they right. yeah, no I, we're in agreement here <laughs> you said you said earlier that you know and this is a fact learning anything for the first time requires dedication and commitment and it's going to be hard and there's going to be ups and downs but you know we hear teachers and us all the time and myself you know we need to stop underestimating our students and, and give them some credit and give them a chance to actually succeed and 
show us what they already know and not, not assume that they don't know anything. I think we can do the same thing for teachers and don't underestimate teachers. Give them a chance to go through and show us what they already know and don't assume that they can't identify language and that they can't do all the things that you just mentioned. And will it be harder at the beginning? Of course, but that's the learning yeah. process and we're learning too. And it doesn't mean that we have to do it the same way that we've done it forever just because we don't want to give them a chance to swim in the deep end. You learn to swim by swimming, Absolutely. I think is a good way yeah. to say it. I mean, that's absolutely true. And it's absolutely crucial that um, if we want our students to show us what they can do, we have to enable them to fail. Mm -hmm. right? We have to, by definition. Um, and by fail, I mean produce something that isn't optimal, right? Mm -hmm. um, because to go back to something, Leo, that you were saying earlier um, about dogma, um, Adrian Underhill once said, um, talking about errors, um, he said, errors become interesting when you strip them of their value judgment. Oh, yeah. You know, which is to say that learn beginning teachers and often very experienced teachers conflate um, language that you can give feedback on with language that is erroneous right mm -hmm. and the first set is a far larger set than the second set but it's the second set that occupies teachers attention it's like what did they get wrong right what can i correct and it's like mm -hmm. no what did they say that was interesting yeah is a far more accessible yeah thing for a, especially for someone who doesn't really know how to talk about right and wrong mm -hmm. like a, a beginning teacher when it comes to language that's a far easier entry point but it's also extremely difficult to get them to think about it in those terms give yeah. you an example the first lesson um, that we ask any of our trainees to teach on our celtic courses is just a simple a simple speaking lesson and while the activities might have implied language focuses you know like maybe a little bit on some and any or you know comparatives are implied we tell them up front it's like you're not teaching any language here we don't want you to teach any language we just want you to set up this activity as just get people talking and let them do it and then see what they produce because we don't know what these people who we haven't met yet can do and can't do I don't know. You don't know. We need to find out. So let's not let's not spike the argument by giving them something to fail at. Let's just see what they do, and maybe they'll yeah. surprise us. Yeah. And they say there's usually a couple of them who can't get their head around this, and they'll say, "Yeah, but I have to teach them something." <laughs> yes. Oh. And it's I just always, say it's always the same argument. Yeah. I mean, yeah. after a while, I would say, you know, why not? But what I really should be saying is, why do you think you have to do it now? Yeah. Where, what's the rush? <laughs> yeah. Of course, the rush is they, they want to learn how to do it and they want to show that they can do it, which is all understandable. But mm -hmm. it's, it shows you how early this mindset sets in. Yes. Yes. Like it sets in before they even get to us as, mm -hmm. as trainers. Um, and I think yeah, I'm, that's a good I'm point. deviating from your, from your original point, Leo, but... Well, that's very interesting, too, because I would assume that that comes from a very organic human place of just having a, a lack of confidence in, in what one is, is doing. And they want to make have something tangible, and just like a student who maybe has learned in that a textbook way forever. 
wants to leave the class and hang their hat on, I learned this grammatical yeah. element today. A teacher likely wants to hang their hat on, I taught a grammatical element today. But of course, to go back to your definition of teaching and teaching-like behavior, teaching can mean anything. And it doesn't have to be a grammatical feature. It certainly yeah. can be. But it can be a fluency activity. It can be confidence boosting. It can be just developing our relationship as a teacher, student, as in a first session. It can be lots of. It's different funny because you mentioned that, and I, I mean, everything that you're saying is just like, it's very much aligned with what we believe in, and I'm very happy that we we brought you in to talk to us about this because I think a lot of teachers really need to open up their minds to this. And I remember you saying something. Um, Anthony, and I know you said you might not remember when you said this, but you've mentioned that I'll, you've seen a lot of people in the past, teachers in general, I would say, failing to make progress because they they were convinced on some level that they knew better, mm. and this kind of stopped them from from developing. Mm. Tell us more about that, because as you said, a lot of teachers mm. come to teacher. Um, initial teacher training with this mindset that they need to teach something. A lot of the mm. teachers that I have spoken to, they said to me, Leo, but if I do dog me and I'm not, I don't have a, a, a teacher go back to Dick all right from teaching points to learning opportunities. I don't have a teaching point. I said, no, but by uncovering the secret to the student's reality, by uncovering the details, you will eventually have these learning opportunities there. So perhaps you could tell us more about that, because I think this is a, it's a good point for us to wrap up this whole dogma thing here. Mm. Right. Well, first of all, I think that we all have, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, um, we all have on some level some faith in what we think, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we think we know best on some level. And some of us have that feeling more strongly developed than others, right? The Let's teacher ego, way. yeah. Yeah. Um, and very often we've got good reasons for that. You know, we have had an experience and um, it's taught us something and nobody can take that away from us. Nobody can, can contradict that um, lived experience, if you will. The problem is that if you then go to a training context which by definition you're doing in order to change or expand or develop your sense of things right you have to be open to the fact that maybe that thing you thought was true is not as true as you thought or is only true under certain circumstances or maybe isn't true right. in this particular circumstance and and being able to to accept that um can be quite difficult when you marry this with the fact that you are going for um, a qualification, that that qualification is externally moderated, that you know that there are some expectations that are embedded in that process, that if you don't get this qualification, that will have negative consequences, face issues, and so on. Back home, this increases, especially the more experience you bring with you right. to the course. And there are an awful lot of pressures that um, as well as just the pressure of time and also then the pressure of language. I'm not even talking about um, people speaking to each other and, you know, using English, even though that maybe isn't their first language and the potential for misunderstanding. I just mean 
not using the same language, but not talking about things in the same terms. And you don't have very much time to really pin that down. Mm. I think all of that makes it difficult for, um, for teachers who are genuinely, sincerely trying to do their best and wanting to work in their students' best interests as they see it from taking a risk um, and doing anything which is different from the way that you are comfortable doing something is a risk because it's, it has the potential not to work. Mm. Yeah. And better the devil, you know, than the devil you don't. And so when I wrote, I wrote a blog post called a question of trust where mm. um, I talked about this because I, you know, I would have these experiences where, you know, something would happen. I would say, look, this happened in the lesson. And I think it's because of this, a possible solution is you try it like this next time. What do you think? And I would get one of three responses. The first response is, that's great. Thank you. And then they went and did it. And then they had the experience of whether it worked or not. Sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And then we continued. Then you have the person who said, that's great. Thank you. And then they don't do it. Right. <laughs> and then you wonder for a while, like, I thought you were cool with that idea i thought and then there are all kinds of reasons why oh yeah i forgot or i was under stress or this or that but ultimately for some of those people it is like that but ultimately it comes down to i didn't really trust the idea or i didn't trust mm. my understanding of it i didn't really accept it but i did also didn't want to i didn't want to have a showdown right right so right. i just accepted it and then mm -hmm. i just evaded or you get the people who basically say yeah but it would never work because yes. my experience X, Y, Z. Um, and I say, yeah, okay, maybe it wouldn't in your context at home, but, but we're here, we're now. <laughs> um, and if you don't, if you're not open to at least um, acting as if the thing I'm suggesting might work for a little while, kind of like a little bit of provisional faith mm -hmm. to see, then we will never know, will we? Yeah. Um, and um Getting people to to accept that the training process is essentially a suspension of disbelief mm. in just the same way that like a theater performance is. You have to you have wow. to engage in it with you know the sense of it might work. Like if I try this thing that's being suggested in good faith, the outcomes that come of that will teach me something. Yeah. Right? But if I don't, then I'm not going to learn anything. Yeah. Um, and in whose interests is that? The last question for me before we, we get you out of here. And since we're talking about, I love that phrase, the suspension of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you were worried that we're not going to actually be I, able to I was. sustain I was, a conversation. I was, no. I was terrified. And, and, no, and now I suddenly realize I'm keeping you from your like mid-morning coffee or something <laughs> anyway sorry well we got another another pot brewing it's okay um since we're debunking myths and we're talking about this suspension of disbelief which we're going to coin now i'm going to steal that with credit because yeah. that's great the last one that we have for you and then we'll get you out of here is we hear this a lot i'm sure you do as well we talked about people who think beginner teachers can't do materials light dogma ish practices because xyz we hear a lot of teachers saying, oh, that sounds great, but you can't do that with beginner students because X, Y, Z. It will never work with beginners based on my experience of X, Y, Z. 
How would you respond to that? Right. Well, one response to that would be um, then how can silent way work or how can um, uh, total physical response work? Because as methodologies, they're both materials light or materials free in any sense that is meaningful. Right. And they clearly do work and they do work from, you know, zero beginner up. So that doesn't seem to me to be a valid argument. But where it is valid is that obviously, just as with any other approach to teaching, um, working with beginners requires, you know, simply much, much more technical control and professional competence than working with, say, an intermediate level student does. It simply does, because if, especially if you're working without the recourse to their first language, which you may have to for various reasons, you have to be so on your game um, in all respects to get anything done. Um, but that's true under any circumstances. It's just that under some circumstances, it's easier um, to get away with, with it because you can give people bits of paper and you can occupy time that's right, and students yeah. have a feeling that they're learning something. Um, so how would you do, you know, dogma with, you know, as near to absolute beginners as makes no difference? Well, I think essentially you would end up with something very much like community language learning or counseling language learning, mm -hmm. which again is where dogma came from. One of the feeder methodologies for dogma is, um, is community language learning, where you simply agree on what you want to talk about. You work out what you want to say. The teacher provides how to say that in English, and you start a conversation very, very slowly, very, very um, provisionally. You probably record it. You go over it for you know to to get the sounds right. But in all of this, um, you don't need to have um, a preconceived idea of what you're going to do. You just yeah. need the the confidence and the experience um to be able to manage that process with people who in english can say virtually nothing at length um, but they certainly have a lot to say mm -hmm. um i suppose i would say that really. yeah and that's the kind of the catch-22 is you would never develop that confidence and expertise if you actually don't throw yourself into the deep water and actually try to actually implement that with beginners. And I find that it's definitely a lot more empowering to work with a, like within a dogma mindset with beginners. I actually find that they actually get more out of that lesson because they're, as you said, they have something to say. Everyone has something to say. They just don't know how to say that in a very specific way or in a, in a specific language, which is my case with sometimes um, Spanish. And just to wrap this up, this is a very general question. This is a question that I like to ask all of our guests here on the podcast. So um, I'm going to throw this one at you. <laughs> if you could have a gigantic billboard, Anthony, anywhere, anywhere in the world with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting this message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? Could be a few words, could be a paragraph. God, that's an enormous question. Um, 
There's no charge for the billboard either. It's free. <laughs> well, then it might be, thank God I'm not paying for this by the hour. Um, no, um, I think probably, um, I know it's, it probably sounds terribly uh, like hippie and you know, 70s or whatever, but just try to be a little bit kinder if you could. You know, I think like also just reflecting on, on what I've been saying here the last hour and a half, I can, I can very easily get exasperated with, with people and things and circumstances. And um, I think in all of that, I try at least to, to remember or to bear in mind that everyone I'm working with and everyone who I'm talking to most of the time in my life as well is, is just trying to get through life the best they can, be a nice person, not hurt people too much, um, and you know, be supportive. And I think in the hustle and bustle, that can probably get lost. We can get involved in our own things. Social media has a way of making us revolve around ourselves and our our sense of value a lot. I think we're just okay. Let's just be a bit kinder and of course the old words of ferris bueller from ferris bueller's day off might actually be worth putting up on a billboard you know life moves pretty fast if you don't stop and look around once in a while you might miss it yeah it's probably true as well they might have to charge you for that billboard mm. yeah we might have to pay royalties <laughs> on that yeah. yeah i i would i mean when you're talking about failing earlier i always think of that Samuel Beckett quote as well. So we, yeah. if we're taking royalties, we can add that one on there. Yeah. You know, what is it? Fail, fail again, fail yeah. better. Try, uh, fail, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Anthony, this has been a pleasure, and uh, we'd like to thank you once again for uh, agreeing to join the podcast today and and share your your thoughts, your ideas, insights with. Uh, with our community, with our listeners. Thank you. It's it's been a real pleasure, and and before that, it was a genuine honor and surprise um, because I you know I don't usually think that I've got a whole lot to say or that would be of interest to people. Certainly not, you know, lots of people around the world. And so, if you think that what I have to say might be interesting to people, that that you know and who listen to you then i take that as a as a great honor and thank you both very much for your time um, because i don't i don't do this kind of thing that often um, and it's it's nice <laughs> thank you well, we'll have to do it again because you have lots to say and even though it's an hour and a half there's more to say on this topic i'm sure so we'll have to do a part two oh, yes. I'd, I'd, I'd be very happy to yeah. Yeah, yeah. thank you very very much the pair of you listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.